Hello and welcome back to the annual meeting podcast. Today, Jim Miner, member of the social media committee and chair at Hennepin, is going to be interviewing Dara Cass, who is one of our award winners, as well as we'll have an interview with Jeffrey Perry, the lead author on the validation of the Canadian TIA rule. This is Jim Miner. I'm here talking to Dr. Dara Cass, who is getting SAM's Leadership for uh, Women Award this year. Congratulations on this big award. This is a huge honor. I'm so excited to talk to you. What do you think about this? I think it's a huge honor. I have to be honest. Uh, This is, um, I am humbled at the receipt of this award. This is the award of all the landscape of all the awards that are given for the advancement of women in, in emergency medicine, and this specifically in academic emergency medicine. This is the award. It's kind of like my, the mic drop award. You know, the one that you're like, oh, I've done it. Now what? Uh, this is the award that women before me have gotten. These are, this is the award that has been received and was started for the women that I have literally stood on the shoulders of to create the changes that we've created. So to be considered in their, um, in their best, in their best next to them, um, is truly remarkable and, and a humbling and uh, well-appreciated uh, award. Well, you know, this is, you've done some really great stuff for the advancement of women in emergency medicine. And uh, I just wanted to know, do you have any advice for someone who's just getting started out in their career and, and wants to kind of follow in your footsteps and keep things moving forward? For me, the, the real answer is find something you believe in. I mean, find something that, that speaks to you. I don't really care what aspect of emergency medicine it is or medicine or humanity or advocacy or anything, but find the thing that speaks to the area of the world that you want to change. Um, it could be like we were talking about a little bit before, de-escalation for patients that are vulnerable in the ER, or it could be um, you know, dealing with the opiate crisis and patients who are coming to the ER over and over again for treatment and not getting anywhere. It could be for operations right? It could be for better streamlined effects for patients getting out of the ER so we don't see them deteriorate in our care after we've admitted them to medicine. But there are so many things that we can believe in that we know are better for our involvement. And for me, that was about the humanity and the treatment and the advocacy and the careers of women in medicine, because I just saw so many of my peers and myself feeling frustrated by a system that didn't let them be their best physician selves while also letting them be their best human selves. And I couldn't handle that for myself, much less anyone else. And that's how we got here, right? It It started at SAM really fundamentally probably about nine years ago when I started getting involved in AWEM, the Academy for Women in Academic Emergency Medicine. But it was the first place that I felt like I had my people and I felt like I had a voice that not just mattered, but that I could continue to, to do work that was going to make a difference. And then I just kept going and finding new people and new voices and new work. And here we are. And so I would just say that continue to find your people, your voice, your work and go forward and the world will change and be a better place. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your leadership. And and you're really moving our specialty forward and making it a better and more equitable place for us all to work. And really just giving giving us all an opportunity to just look at how great things have gotten. I mean, not not (laughs) in the past, but I think we've just made a lot of progress. And it's your leadership has really made a huge difference for our specialty. It's okay to say that we're better off than we used to be. And there's still a lot of work to do. 
That's a totally fine statement. I think that we are better off than we used to be. And more importantly, a lot of it is this cultural evolution we have in emergency medicine around the idea. And it's happening not just with gender. It happens with our perceptions of burnout and suicidality. It happens with our perceptions of workplace violence or bullying or harassment or, you know, patient care, exhaustion, like all these other, other things that we do. We are getting better at looking at ourselves again as people. And realizing that there's more to our, our survival than just how much money we make or what our prescreening scores are or, you know, how fast we get promoted. Uh, but all of those things, the money we make, our prescreening scores, and how fast we get promoted are um, absolutely linked to how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves, how we treat our patients, how we treat our families. And those, uh, looking at those issues as integrated ultimately gets us to what we need, which is better patient care and better survival and humanity for the physicians in our workforce. Yeah, and a, and a really a better environment for us all to be in, you know, as we achieve all those great things. Right, and, and longer careers for the people in medicine also. I mean, remembering that we are a highly specialized, invested workforce of people who save lives. And that's a good thing to keep around. Yeah. <laughs> like society is better when we are doing our jobs well, happy, fulfilled, healthy. And again, gender equity is one aspect of that. Uh, obviously, there are many, many other aspects to it, but it's the corner of the world that I've just tried to change. So what's next? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> a nap, probably. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. I think that, you know, we've done a lot of work at Feminem on creating these academic environments and the conference and all that stuff. So we're going to keep going with that. We're going to keep doing uh, Times Up Healthcare, which is another initiative that I'm part of to make uh, equitable and safe work for all women in healthcare, not just doctors. Uh, there's a few other aspects of the advocacy slash political world that I'm probably going to get involved in because I think that it's important for doctors to have a voice that is recognized. I think that you look at the landscape of the issues hitting us in the future and what we know um, through equity and through advocacy and healthcare are going to be a lot of the issues uh, facing the next election and the next questions we have as a society. Even climate security is a healthcare issue, right? We know that we see a prevalence of diseases and you know immunizations. All these things are coming together at a head that says that physicians probably need to be more active. Um, and have more powerful voices and at any level of the landscape across all spectrums. And I think that maybe this voice, my voice, the one that's kind of an unapologetic out there voice might be a good one to have out there. Well, it's awesome. And congratulations on your award. It's well-deserved. Thank it's, you very uh, much. I to have you in our specialty and uh, look forward to continuing to follow what the great things you uh, lead us to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Next, we'll be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Perry. He's a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Ottawa and the lead author of one of our plenary sessions, Prospective Multicenter Validation of the Canadian TIA Score for Predicting uh, Subsequent Stroke Within Seven Days. Uh, Dr. Perry, uh, congratulations on your plenary and uh, welcome to the podcast. So this is uh, this was a pretty massive cohort, and as the title says, a validation of the Canadian TIA score. Just go through quickly as to what you guys were able to do. So this was a large study. It was over 7,500 patients, which about 1.4% ended up having a, a subsequent stroke, and you were able to define uh, low, moderate, and high-risk categories for the recurrence within seven days. Can you speak to how you uh, define that endpoint of seven days and uh, found value in that particular number? Sure. Um, so essentially, we we um, this was, as you mentioned, the validation phase. So we had previously derived... 
the Canadian TIA um, score uh, in a previous cohort of 3,906 patients. And we'd used the uh, outcome of seven days in that previous phase as well. Um, we thought the seven days was important um, because it basically was um, a short-term outcome, which is uh, very pertinent to emergency medicine. We're very uh, focused on on the the short-term risk of our patients and um, make sure that we do everything within our power to optimize um, patients' outcomes over the short term, whereas the uh, either primary care providers or the specialists will be more focused on the, their longer-term uh, outcomes. So we felt that it, it often takes uh, up to a week to get in to see a specialist. Um, uh, so given that uh, being the case that we would want to predict uh, outcomes that would be um, happening within a week. Can you talk a little bit about what your cutoffs are or for those low, moderate, and high-risk groups? Sure. So what we we did was, so the, the Canadian TIA, TIA score, it's a, it is a, admittedly a bit of a complicated score uh, as far as scores go. And, and part of that is because we feel TIA is a, a bit of a heterogeneous um, problem where people can get these from large vessel disease, small vessel disease, or cardioembolic um, etiologies. So we realized that it's going to be uh, a bit more complicated. So within the TIA score, we, we have 13 variables, um, and they contribute a score of between minus 3 and plus 4 each for each variable. And essentially, you end up with a final score between minus three and uh, up to twenty-three. So, with within that, we um, have previously surveyed emergency physicians and uh, neurologists uh, in Canada. In in approximately two hundred fifty, we had about two hundred fifty responses from both groups uh, within a Canadian context, and from that. Um, those surveys results, we uh, were defined basically low risk as being less than 1% um, and high risk being sort of over 5%. And so the, the uh, group in between was the medium risk. So because from that, we basically looked at our uh, the, the score points and found the numbers that corresponded to um, uh, those cut points um, to represent our um low, medium, and high-risk groups. And these are all incredibly practical. And just to go through a couple of the components of the actual score, so first TIA, symptoms greater than 10 minutes, carotid stenosis history, use of antiplatelet agents, gait disturbance, unilateral weakness, vertigo, uh, blood pressure, dysarthria or aphasia, AFib, abnormal CT findings, platelets greater than 400, and glucose. So it seems like these are very pragmatic, very practical tests that you would be getting on a majority of your patients that are presenting with TIA or non-disabling stroke type symptoms. Was there a protocolization or was it a pragmatic uh, providers ordering test that they would already order? So it was pragmatic. Uh, so it was a prospective cord study in which uh, we didn't alter care. Um, but as you mentioned, these are um, items that would be typically um, requested. Um, so certainly the clinical findings, I guess that we did protocolize it because we asked for those specifically to be completed. Um, and then for the 
imaging um, or the investigations, um, that was left to the physicians, but realistically on anyone who you're, you're con really concerned about or you're labeling as a TIA or non-disabling stroke, um, basically about 90, I'd have to look at the exact number, but certainly a high 90% uh, that would have um, each of these variables done. So the imaging, uh, CT imaging um, was done in 97% of the uh, patients that went through. So we did have miss about 3% and um, it was about the same for ECG. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, CT findings are included in here. Did you have providers and looking at the data that had positive CT findings in whom were otherwise low risk enough to go home? So, yes, and, and uh, within the, the Canadian context, uh, although we, there's, there's a lot of heterogeneity between the different uh, sites, we had 14 sites in the study, and um, some sites um, were, the, almost all the patients would be seen immediately um, by the, the staff neurologist, whereas other ones, they would uh, almost all sort of have a protocol to be started on antiplatelets or um, anticoagulation if they're in atrial fibrillation and follow up the following day or a couple of days later in a stroke prevention clinic. So there was some um, variances within the models, but for the most part, um, uh, the, 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 uh, a lot of the patients did go home. Uh, they're basically only about uh, less, less than 10% of our cohort were actually admitted to hospital. Uh, so most of the patients in, in the Canadian system do go home, um, and that's either with or without seeing a neurologist before doing so, but then they're rapidly followed up and uh, they're started on treatments immediately within the emergency if they are going home. So the answer to your, I guess your question about going home, um, certainly yes, people did go home with, with infarct, um, uh, but uh, and uh, of note, I mean, it's, when we look at infarct, infarcts within this cohort are quite uh, common, uh, especially the the, the old and uh, older chronic infarcts. Uh, they were present uh, quite frequently, and they're they're present in about thirty nine percent of those with subsequent stroke versus twenty four percent in those who didn't have a subsequent stroke in the following seven days. Can you speak to a little bit about what your cohort, as someone that practices in the middle of America where chili is all, our kind of hallmark food, as to the baseline health of a lot of your patient population? <laughs> sure. So certainly um, the baseline health uh, is, is quite variable. Uh, I'd say within in the Canadian context, uh, there's uh, a lot of similarities with uh, to the American uh, population. Uh, with in terms of uh, lifestyle, diet, uh, um, prevalence of, of diabetes, um, and whatnot. Uh, I can give you a bit of an idea of our overall cohort. Um, so it's about 59% of them have hypertension, 19% uh, have diabetes, 11% were smokers, um, and about uh, a th over a third had high cholesterol. So... Um, 
probably somewhat similar to to the patient cohorts that, that would be seen in, in America as well. I, this is clearly great work, which will have a huge impact uh, moving forward. Do you think that this is a tool that people leaving the conference, when they see the manuscript, get to critique the manuscript, that they can bring forward to their patients the next day? So I, I do think that, that it is certainly ready to, to or reliable to use because we've we have validated within the um, a new pa- patient population. Uh, we are uh, nearly finished writing up the, the manuscript, and so it, it certainly can be used. We are still looking to see if there's ways to further improve the rule and see if there's any ways to simplify it. But certainly, uh, in terms of following the, the methodology for creating clinical decision tools or prediction scores, uh, we have been following quite rigorously the methodology required to do so. So yes, I do have, uh, believe it is ready to use. We're just hoping that we can make it even better yet. It would be ready to use uh, once people obviously have a chance to look at the full manuscript and see everything that we did in greater detail and make a decision as far as whether they're ready to um, to rely on this uh, newly validated tool. Well, congratulations on the work. Uh, Thank you for your time and uh, good luck in your future work. Great. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap on another annual meeting podcast. Join us next time. We'll be discussing the inaugural FOMAD Excellence in Education Award with Ken Milne, as well as sex and race differences in the heart score by a medical student from Wake Forest, as well as a plenary speaker at this year's meeting, Nella Henley. 